Um, one of the favorite commercials in our house are the Prudential commercials with Dr. Rick. Anybody know what I'm talking about, Dr. Rick? I got a picture up here, I think, for you. There you go. You remember Dr. Rick? Look at that mustache, right? How do you not love that mustache? I love this. All right, so I find these commercials hilarious, all right? I, he steps into these adults that are, like, verging on, like, middle adulthood, and he is helping them from becoming their parents. And so here's what he does. He does things like teaching them how to use their cell phones, right? So there's one commercial where he's like, this is how every phone has it. You can just flip the switch and it puts it on silent. And they're all like, oh yeah, okay, great. He's like showing them how to do a PDF on a actual tablet. He helps them with thinking through like not saying intrusive comments in public. He talks to dads about like, hey, whenever you sit down, you don't have to make a loud noise. And you, just, you can just sit, the chair's there, nobody needs to hear it, right? He, he does all, it's so funny, all right? Love these commercials. And they're hilarious because they're true, you know what I'm saying? You look at them and you watch them and you can see things that happen in your life or the friends that are in your life. You're not at that point yet. You look at this and you're like, oh my gosh, I can see this in Josh. I see Josh, he makes the loud noise when he sits down in the chair. We love these commercials, they're hilarious because they're true, Right? And here's what I want you to notice. If you go search Dr. Rick, he actually has a mission statement, all right? You can go to a website where he has a mission statement. I have it on the screen for you. Here's his mission statement. He's a print-a-life coach, Dr. Rick. Love that, print-a-life. And his mission is to save you from turning into your parents. And look at this. He comes up with his own phrase, combat parentamorphosis. I love that. I make up words all the time. That's why I love this. Combat parentamorphosis with the latest Dr. Rick commercials. Hilarious. Love these things, right? Tonight, we're looking at Genesis chapter 26, and it's the last complete chapter we get of Isaac's story, right? So there's probably a lot that we could take away just from that, and that you should probably not look at your life too seriously, right? Um, But the focus turns to Jacob. But as we look at this chapter, we're going to kind of do a two-part series tonight and then next Sunday. And what we'll see is that Isaac could have used a Dr. Rick in his life. Because what we see in Genesis chapter 26 is he's becoming his parents. Isaac falls into similar patterns that we observed in the life of Father Abraham in the weeks prior to this. He resembles his father in both a positive and a negative sense here, all right? We're going to see that there's a semblance of Abraham's faith that we find in Isaac's life as we look at this passage, but we're also going to see a similar pattern of sin that Isaac falls into, same as his father. And so we need to pay attention to this passage because it's something we too experience. There's a pastor, Peter Scazzaro, he says this, Jesus may be in your heart, making fun of like a Christian statement, right? But grandpa is in your bones. What he's saying is the people in our life profoundly shape us. The people, the home that you grew up in, the people in your life, they have a profound shaping on your life. And as we'll see through Isaac's life, that it's helpful for us to stop and to consider where we've been because it helps us understand where we are now, all right? It helps us to stop and consider where we've been 
because it helps us consider where we are now and maybe even the trajectory of where we're headed. Yet at the same time, here's what we also need to see. Where we come from does not determine our identity or our future. That's the power of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is that where you've been, where you come from, does not dictate your identity or it doesn't dictate your future. That's Jesus' job. When you trust in Jesus, he's the one that gives you a new identity, and he's also the one that determines your future. This is good news for us, right? And so while we glance at our past and where we come from because it's helpful, we set our gaze on Jesus because he's our hope. So this is where we're headed tonight, all right? I want us to glance at where we've been so we can identify patterns in our life, both positive and negative. But then we're going to end gazing at Jesus because he's the one that determines our identity and our future, and he's our hope. That's where our gaze needs to be set. It's helpful to glance. We need to know where our gaze is supposed to be. And so here's my prayer, that through all of this, that God would grow an awareness inside of us, that he would help us maybe connect some dots about where we're at in life and why, through wrestling through some questions that we are drawing out from this, the story of Isaac. But at the same time, my prayer is that we would be rooted in Jesus, all right? I want us to grow an awareness, but I want us to be rooted in what our true hope is. Amen? All right. So let's begin with the patterns. We see this in verses 1 through 6, and what we see is Isaac demonstrates faith like his father Abraham. All right, I'm not going to reread all of it. Let me recap it for us. Here's what happens. Verse 1, a famine breaks out. And here's what the author does. He points it back to and he's trying to help it connect to Abraham's life. Hey, this happened to Abraham's life too. There's a famine that popped up during Abraham's time. This is happening again in Isaac's time. And as this happens, Isaac moves to Gerar. And this is where Abimelech and the Philistines reside. All right, so we've already talked about Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. A lot of the Bible teachers say that this is a different Abimelech, that it's more of a title than it is a person. Same people, still a king, likely a different one. And God instructs Isaac to stay in the midst of the famine in the land of the Philistines. And he tells him, don't go to Egypt. This is what Abraham did. And so God's instruction to Isaac is to stay. Stay. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham flees the famine, goes to Egypt. But here we see that he's to stay with Abimelech and the Philistines, that's more Genesis 20. So we're kind of seeing two different chapters in Abraham's life come together. And here's what happens in the midst of the call to stay. We see the reissue of the promise that was given to Abraham. God says, I will be with you and I will bless you. I will give you all these lands to you and your offspring. I'll confirm the oath that I swore to Abraham. I'll make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. And all of the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. And then I have this on the screen, verse 5. It gives us the reason why he's going to do all this. Look, because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands my statutes 
and my instructions. And so what's Isaac's response? We see him follow through in the patterns of his father, Abraham, because verse 6 tells us, so Isaac settled in Gerar. So here's how I want us to think about this. Faith and obedience is ultimately the work of God in our lives. I'm going to show that to us, all right? Yet, God often uses the people in our lives in the work of faith and obedience. I want to try to connect this to our past and our homes and where we've been. And this should cause us to stop and consider. So therefore, we ought to stop and consider our life of faith and obedience. All right, let me unpack those three things for us. First, faith and obedience are ultimately the work of God in our lives. Abraham's the poster child of this in the Bible. This is what all of Galatians that we looked at last fall was pointing us to, that Abraham is the poster child, that the work of salvation in our life beginning to end is God's work. That's what the Apostle Paul is teasing out for us. God initiated with Abraham and he gave him a promise. In Genesis chapter 15, we're told that Abraham believed what God said and it was credited to him as righteousness, meaning when Abraham believed, he trusted that God was going to follow through with the work in order to fulfill his promises. And he believed that God was going to be the one that carried it through. And because Abraham believed, we see that it was credited to him as righteousness. Before Abraham did anything, his belief preceded his actions. What happened in that passage is God gives the instructions for circumcision. We won't go into what that is, like the details of that right now. But what we see is that the people in the New Testament tried to put circumcision with belief. And what Paul is saying is like, no, God's never worked that way. Belief has always been in the work that God would do on our behalf. We see that in Abraham. Look, we see that with Isaac again here. God comes and then he initiates with Isaac here. He, he gives, he reissues the promise. He calls Isaac to stay. So Isaac believes him staying is a a sign of his belief, and he is trusting that God is going to follow through on the work. It's happening again here with Isaac, and it always happens this way even today. This is how we step into relationship with God. God initiated with us by sending Jesus. We trust in the life and work of of Jesus, everything that he's done for us, nothing that we bring to the table. And what is the gift, the free gift of God? We get all of Jesus' perfect relationship with God. This, this is what's happening. This is the pattern. Salvation is always ultimately the work of God in our life. Yet, God uses the people in our lives in the work of faith and obedience. In Isaac's case, God uses his father, Abraham. Look at verse 5 again with me. Because. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. 
and living a life of faith and obedience, God points to Abraham's example in Isaac's life here. We see the power of the home and the life of faith and obedience and the example of Abraham in Isaac's life. So the work of salvation is always and ultimately the work of God in our lives. But how does he carry it out? Through the people in our lives. This is also shown to us in the power of the home in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So this is Moses writing again. This is part of the first five books. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So Moses is writing Genesis. He also writes the law in Deuteronomy. And in chapter 6, we see his instructions for the home. And here's what we see. Three different things. That we are to love God passionately. That we are to teach truth practically. And that we are to share our stories personally. All right, let me, let me kind of unpack this for us. So in the home, discipleship and the passing off of the faith is the primary means by which God is using the home to share the faith with the next generation. Verse 5 of chapter 6 tells us that we're to love God passionately. It's not going to be on your screen. I just want you to soak this in, all right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love God passionately with all that you have. Let there be consistency in your life. In other words, may the people in your home be able to see the passion that you have for God in walking in relationship with him. Love God passionately. Let it be like the outward overflow of your life that other people can see what God is doing inside of you. And then, from there, teach the children practically. Okay, so we see this um, in verse 7. He tells us, repeat the truths, the instructions that Moses is giving to God's people. And he says, talk about them, these instructions, when you sit in your house. And when you walk along the road. And when you lie down. And when you get up. Basically, he's saying, look, the way that you pass off the faith in the home isn't supposed to just be academic lectures, but you're supposed to engage your family in day-to-life, everyday things that are happening in your home. Like, you step in and you help them think through the truth and apply it to their life in the day-to-day tasks that you're doing. This is the way kids learn, right? This is how Isaac would have learned from his father Abraham. Abraham would have been sharing stories. He would have been telling of the promises. He would have been sharing the instructions. It wasn't just some academic lecture that Abraham passes off to Abraham. All right, son, sit down, take out your notes, and like write down everything I'm about to tell you. No, he engages with his son. He's like, as they're walking along the road, he's like sharing the stories of God. As he's putting his son to sleep at night, he's sharing about the delight of of the instruction of God. He's imparting truth that is helping him live in the day-to-day. This is what happens in Abraham's, and Moses is like, hey, this should be happening in your homes. And then third, you share your story personally. Later at the end of chapter six, Moses is anticipating 
that the people of the home will come and ask, like, what's the meaning of all this? All this instruction and all the sharing of the truth and the stories, what's the purpose of all this? And Moses' response is that you share your story. You share your testimony. He tells Israel, share with them the stories about how God rescued you from Egypt. How God stepped in and rescued you. Look, for us, we are, they were looking ahead to Jesus. For us, we're looking back to Jesus. And we're sharing, we're sharing about how God has come and rescued us through the life and work of Jesus. We're pointing back and how God has come and stepped into our life and engaged our sin and has pointed us to Jesus and how we have trusted in Christ and all that he's done in our life. We share our story. This is how the power of the home works in passing off the faith to the next generation. I had a really important story that was shared to me like it was like I got to step into another friend's life this past week all right he was sharing the example of how he saw this come to fruition in his own home all right so he had one of those rare opportunities his grandfather was passing away from cancer and they knew about it so he got to go and have a final conversation with his grandfather which we I mean we know in this life that this life is but a vapor right I mean, it passes away. It's very rare that you get to step into a conversation that you know is your last chance to talk with a loved one. And here's what he said happened in that conversation. His grandfather told him to go get the family Bible. All right, so he, they had this family Bible that had been passed down from generation to generation since they came to the United States in like the 1700s. His family was from Ireland. And so what they had in this Bible is it shared every single generation, every like family since the 1700s, there had been someone that had come to faith. And in the Bible, they listed out all of the stories about how people came to faith, what year they came, how, who shared it with them, how they came to faith. And so he got basically this lineage of their spiritual history, their family, throughout their entire, since the 1700s. And he was like, this thing is the most important relic that I ever could have received. He said, here's what, here's, here's what his statement was to us. God saved them, speaking of the people in his past, yet he undeniably had used the home in that work. He was like, this is just like faithfulness. God's generosity, his kindness, and showing how he's used the home to bring people in my family to faith in Jesus Christ. Look, we see this with Isaac and Abraham's example to him. We see that this is to be the pattern for those that follow in relationship with Jesus, that we are to impart the faith to the next generation, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And look, you can see how God is still doing it today. Like, my friend is an example of this. The home can be a powerful, powerful vehicle for sharing patterns of walking in faith before our living God. We see this in Isaac's life, and we should stop and consider how God is doing it in our life. This, is, this should be the last, like, kind of next response as we think about all this, that we should stop and that we should consider our own story of faith and obedience with God. 
as you think about Isaac with Abraham, as you think about God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as you think about how God is working today, should stop and consider our story of faith and obedience. Here's a question for you to consider. Who pointed me to Jesus? The home is a powerful vehicle by which God uses to point us to Jesus. But here's the beautiful thing about our God is he's not limited to the family. All right? So there are likely other people in your life, if you grew up in a home that did not point you to Jesus, if you're in this room, someone has pointed you to Jesus. Praise be to God, right? Thank goodness that God is so big that he's not limited to certain vehicles, but he is so powerful that he can use any person in our life to point us to Jesus. So the question is, who pointed you to Jesus? And here's two things that I would really encourage you to do as you leave tonight, that you should thank them. They are a gift of God in your life. The work of salvation is ultimately his work, yet he uses the people in your life in the work of salvation. And as you stop and consider your own story, how God has placed people in your life that have pointed you to Jesus, thank God and then thank them for their faithfulness. But secondly, emulate them. If your home modeled faith and obedience, look, follow in their footsteps. What they have instructed and passed off to you, look, build off of it. Like, thankful for the model, but how can I continue to grow it? What does that look like in your family? Like, what does that look like in your apartment with your housemates? What does it look like with your coworkers? Like, how are you as God has given you people in your life that have pointed you to Jesus, how can you build off of it? Emulate them. Emulate them. And if this wasn't your home, look, it's okay to feel something about that, right? It's okay for you to feel a sense of loss there. It's okay to feel a sense of sad. I, I don't want to project what it may be on you, but like there may be, you feel like a, a sense of sadness or a loss there. That's okay, but look, Consider the examples that God has given you and then look and emulate their life and the way that they pointed you to Jesus both inside your home as well as outside your home. He's given you models and he's given you patterns in your life. He's placed people in your life to point you to Jesus so that you can do in turn what they have done for you to other people. Amen? Amen. These are patterns of faith. We should see it in Isaac's life. We should see how this is the pattern throughout Scripture. We see how God's doing it today, and we should thank them, and we should emulate them, all right? But we also see that this is Abraham and his patterns in Isaac's life weren't always just a positive thing. They are sometimes a negative thing, which is what we see in verses 7 through 11, because Isaac falls into patterns of sin that we see in his father and stories before. Let me reread this for us because I think it is helpful. So verse 7 says this. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. 
when Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, so this shows like this has taken place for a while, right? Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. <laughs> this is, the word caressing there is actually a play on Isaac's uh, meaning of his uh, name, which is he was like playful. Um, this is something obviously that's bound just for the, the uh, marriage bed between a man and a woman, and Abimelech is surprised to see what is happening as he looks out his window. Verse 9, Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, so she really is your wife. How could you say she is my sister? That's disgusting, bro. Isaac answered him, because I thought I might die on account of her. And then Abimelech said, what have you done to us? This is, you should be shocked by this, that the man that has been issued the promise again, we see the Philistines and Abimelech outdo his fear of God in this particular passage, right? What have you done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife and you have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Here's what we need to see. Sin is ultimately a heart problem. It's also a home problem. And again, it should lead us to stop and consider. All right. So first, we see that sin is ultimately a heart problem. We see that here with Isaac. Verse 7 says this, When the men of the place asked his wife about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. Isaac had a fear, prob- fear of man problem. He had a fear of man problem. God instructed Isaac to stay. God promised Isaac that he would be with him and that he would bless him, that he would give him the land, he would give him offspring, the nations of the earth will be blessed by him, yet Isaac is overcome with the fear of man. And where does this fear reside? In his heart. Isaac, Isaac's mouth told Abimelech and the Philistines, she is my sister, but Isaac's heart, look at this, thinking, it's what Moses reports here, thinking, not saying, but thinking, the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. This is a heart issue. Isaac's sin is a heart problem. It's something that resided in his heart that he had not spoken out loud to someone else, and yet God knows. Isaac is responsible for this sin. Hebrews 4.13 tells us this, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This means God sees everything about our life, even the heart stuff. The things that don't make it off of our lips, 
but stay in our hearts, it's as if they were spoken out loud because God knows what's in your heart. And he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that we'll have to stand and give an account, meaning you're responsible for this. So sin is ultimately a heart problem, yes? But sin, as we see in Isaac's life, is also a home problem. Um, We love Christmas in our house. Uh, One of the Christmas movies that we'll watch on occasion is Four Christmases. Vince Vaughn, Reese Witherspoon, anybody watch this? There's a line in the movie um, as they're going to visit their families um, where they say you can't spell families without lies. That's Isaac's family. (laughs) They have a family pattern of lying. We saw Abraham make this mistake twice. Genesis chapter 12, after he's called to leave the land of his ancestors and he's given the promise At the very end of that chapter, a famine hits. Where does he go? He flees, and he goes to Egypt, and he he lies about Sarah being his wife, says that she is his sister, and he's caught in a lie. God intervenes. We see it again happen in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech, the different Abimelech. We see that God does the exact same thing. He comes to Abimelech in a dream. He confronts him. And we see that Abraham again is caught in a lie. Isaac is caught up in the pattern of his father here. He does the exact same thing, except it's not a half lie because Sarah was his half-sister. Rebecca, he doesn't have that, right? This is just like flat-out lie that's happening here. But it doesn't stop with Isaac. Jacob's name which is Isaac's son, actually means the deceiver. And then we look at ten of his sons in the story of Joseph that come and lie about the false death of their brother. Isaac's family has a family pattern of lying. So it's a home problem. If Deuteronomy 6 shows us the power of the home and passing off the faith to the next generation, if you want to view it on the negative means, it can also show us that it passes off patterns of sin to the next generation. Another way of saying it is it models a way for the heart problem to find its way into an action problem. They look at the patterns of the home, and it gives an expression to the heart problem, making it an action problem. And again, this should cause us to stop and consider. Because here's the problem. (laughs) You have a heart problem. You've been surrounded by other human beings that also have heart problems, which means you have a home problem that you're caught up in family patterns as well, which should cause us to ask some questions, shouldn't it? Here's a couple of questions, all right. What heart problem do I need to address? As I look at Isaac's life and the way that he models 
the pattern of his family here, and he has a heart issue, then like, what heart problem do I need to address? Because look, I too, just like Isaac and Abraham and all who have come after him have a heart problem. So Isaac's heart problem was fear of man. What is yours? Is it pride? Is it envy? Anger? Laziness? You greedy? Struggle with food? Dealing with gluttony? You caught up in lust? What's your heart problem? Do you have one? But secondly, what home pattern needs to die with me? Um, Pete Scazzaro, again, he has the Ten Commandments of your family in the book, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I don't have time to go through all ten of them, but I did try to capture two of them that I think may really hit home for us. The first one that he talks about is relationships. We can find unhealthy patterns with relationships that we inherit from our family. Here's one of those. That you don't trust people. Why? People just let you down. Nobody will ever hurt me again. Anybody ever heard that in your heart? Because I can't trust people and I've been hurt by people, I've been wounded by people, I won't trust people, and so they will not get in. They will not hurt me. And how does this express itself? You don't show enough vulnerability, right? You never give somebody the opportunity to step into some of the sacred places of your life. You just live closed off. Here's what's the reality of that. You don't get to experience the beauty of relationship. Relationship is a gift. Look, you're created in the image of God, which means that you are a relational being because we believe in one God in three persons. And so if you live closed off, can't trust people, nobody gets in, you don't experience the beauty of relationship. Maybe you don't get hurt as bad. Here's the reality, like you will get hurt. But the other end of it is you never experience the power of the relationship. These are patterns that we can inherit and take on from our families. Secondly is feelings and emotions. Some feelings and emotions are off limits to some families. Which shows and rears its head and like you never engage in conflict. Look, conflict can actually be really healthy. But if you're just trying to keep the peace and you can't express certain emotions, you can't actually experience the healing within the family. So your feelings really aren't that important. Like you just kind of shove them down. You throw them in the back of the trunk. You never deal with them. Or reacting with your feelings without thinking is okay. 
that you can just explode. I'm just expressing myself. Well, guess what? You're also damaging and hurting people. These can be patterns that we take on from our family, and we have to stop and we have to consider them. Isaac, we see, has a a fear of man problem. That's his heart problem. He inherits a family pattern of lying that doesn't end with him. If we want to stop and consider, we ask, well, what of these patterns in my family needs to die with me? Now, here's, can I anticipate something? This is what I was feeling. Maybe I'm I'm not trying to project on you, but maybe you're feeling this with me. You may be thinking, well, Josh, that's all I know. I, I don't know any different. So how, how does this happen? <laughs> what does this look like? How do I do this? Well, this is where we only glance at where we've come from and we gaze at the one that holds our identity and determines our future because he's the one that shows us the way. The gospel is the power by which God uses to give us a different future. He gives us a new identity, but he also determines our future. And so look, your past doesn't dictate who you are, nor does it dictate your future. That's the power of the good news of Jesus, all right? So look, the gospel is that you now have the identity as the son and daughter of God. Mark chapter 3 is one of my favorite books or favorite chapters in the Bible, like the story at the very end of this. Jesus is approached by his mother as well as his siblings, and he's healing, and he's asked to come out of the house to his family because they think he's speaking nonsense. And so someone come, they come to Jesus and they say, your mother and your brothers are here for you. And what is Jesus' response? Do you remember? Yeah, that's right. Who's my brother? Who's my mother? You know how he responds to this? This is uh, verses 34 and 35. Here are my mother and my brothers. As he looks around to the people in the room. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Look, he's reorienting and he's giving new identity here, but you need to understand what title is left out. Mother, sister, and brother are included. What's left out? Father. You know why? He's speaking of adoption. For those of us that have trusted in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are now considered the son's or the brothers and sisters of Christ. Here's what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. So speaking of Jesus, the one who sanctifies, as well as the, those of us that are being sanctified, we have the same Father, the heavenly Father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He's speaking of you who have trusted in him. How does this happen? Well, verse 18 or 17 gives us the answer. Therefore, 
Jesus, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people, the brothers and sisters. So Jesus, the elderly brother, goes and he lives in your place He dies in your place and he raises from the grave three days later so that he can give you all of his perfect standing with the Father. So that you can be called his brother and his sister. You are given a new identity when you trust in Jesus that you're no longer just the family of origin, but now you're a part of the family of God. And it gets even better I don't have this on the screen for you, but I will read it for you. 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through the beginning of verse 12 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, listen to this, we will also reign with him. Since you are the brother and sister of Jesus, you're also the heirs of the kingdom. And when we walk with Jesus and we live with Jesus and he comes back, look, you will reign with him. So let's go back to the question of how. It's all I've ever known. How how do I live differently, Josh? Well, you live your new identity. There's a story of King Louis of France, the 17th, in the late 1700s that I think depicts this for us well. So King Louis XVI is taken from his throne and he's imprisoned. And then his young son, Louis Charles, the prince, was taken by those who dethroned the king. And they tried to destroy his future by exposing him to a luring and filthy sin. They exposed him to rich foods so that he would become a slave to his appetite They used vile language around him constantly, hoping that it would drag him down. They exposed him to perversity with women. They exposed him to dishonor and distrust, trying to entice him away from the kingdom of his father to these people that are trying to subvert his authority. They did this 24 hours a day for six months, but none of it worked. And so they asked him at the end of this, why won't you participate with us? We're providing you pleasure. We're providing you with a means to satisfy your passions. We're literally giving you all that everyone in the world wants. They're all yours. Why aren't you participating in these things with him? And here's the prince's response. I cannot do what you have asked because I was born to be a king. In other words, he lived from his identity. Your heart and your home patterns may pop up again. That's not how we deal with relationships. This is the family pattern. That's not how we relate to emotions. This is what we do. That's not how we handle money. This is how we handle money. This is how success 
defines your life, not the way that Jesus has told you. Revert back to the family. But look, when you've trusted in Jesus, he has given you a new identity as well as determined your future. And so you can look at the voice of the way you once lived and say, that's not what I was reborn for. I was reborn as the son and daughter of God. I trust in Jesus. I will reign with him when he comes back again. And so when these things pop up, these patterns pop up, your heart problems pop up, you can talk to them. You can say, that's not who I am anymore. And you can say, I'm going to follow the new family pattern. I'm going to live from my identity. And what happens is that the chains of sin are broken in your life. Not because you're strong, but because of the one who lives inside of you is strong. And you can live with him. And you can walk with him. And you can enjoy him. And you can live differently because where you came from does not define your identity, nor does it determine where you're headed. Jesus does. Amen? Hey, can, I, can you just look at me? Jesus is beautiful. He rewrites your story. Your family doesn't define you. What you've done does not have to define you. When you trust in Jesus, he says, I define you. And that authority is the best authority that you could possibly have in your life. Look, Look at me, look at me. You can tell the old patterns, no. They do not enslave you anymore. You are the son and the daughter of God. You are the brother and sister of Jesus. Live from your identity. So Dr. Rick is right that our homes, they rub off on us. <laughs> the story of Isaac teaches us this, doesn't it? Positive and negative. Where we've been leaves an effect on us. It shapes us. This week, would you stop and would you consider how others have pointed you to Jesus? Would you thank them and would you emulate them? Will you ask yourself the question, what patterns need to end with me? Reminding yourself that where I came from does not have the final say. Jesus has the final say. And here's what you do. Our homes, they get a glance because it's helpful. Jesus gets your gaze because he's your hope. Let's pray.